Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. How much is enough? This is the question when it comes to saving for retirement, and our pensions expert, Josephine Cumbo, has some answers. Is stamp duty suffocating the property market? Professor Tony Travers from the London School of Economics says yes, it is, and joins me to explain why. And finally, what property measures can we expect in the budget next week? Whether you're a homeowner, renter or a buy-to-let landlord, our money mentor Lindsay Cook reveals her predictions. Welcome to The Money Show, the FT's weekly podcast about personal finance and investing. I'm Claire Barrett, FT Money Editor, bringing you this week's money news. When it comes to pension savings, how much is enough? This is a very pertinent question for cash-strapped younger workers who can often be tempted to stop contributing to their pension as they battle to pay down student loans and save for a housing deposit. But in the long term, it could prove a costly move. Joining me in the studio to discuss is Josephine Cumbo, the FT's award-winning pensions correspondent. Welcome, Jo. Hello, Claire. So you were inspired to write about the health of long-term pension savings after meeting a young doctor. Yes, I met a young doctor who's currently working uh, in Manchester. He's 29 years old and he was telling me the story about when he started as a hospital doctor two years ago after studying, doing two degrees and being in college and at university for around five to six years. He started his first job, it was with the NHS and he was enrolled into the NHS pension scheme which is a very good defined benefit. It offers a secure income at the end of saving but he pulled out he pulled out he decided to opt out of the NHS pension scheme halfway through his first year as a doctor because he said he couldn't afford the pension contributions which were seven percent of his salary or around 163 pounds a month because he was just drowning in debt he had around 47,000 pounds of student loans to pay off each month and that was being deducted from his salary but on top of that he had a 3,000 pound overdraft associated with his student costs and £500 worth of credit card debt. He said it wasn't frivolously drawn up at all. It was just the costs of studying and moving into the new job and getting settled. He said it made sense for him to just pay down the debt first and then put off, put a stop to the pension saving. He said it wasn't an easy decision to make and people tried to tell him and talk him out of making that decision, but he thought it was the best thing to do was to deal with the debts. Well, that's a really interesting way into this topic, um, which we get a lot of correspondence at FT Money from our younger readers, but also the older ones who have children who are worried that their children are putting off pension savings for too long. So your piece contains some examples of how much of a retirement fund a 25-year-old could save over the course of a 40-year career. 
but the numbers are quite surprising. Yes, we've done a lot of number crunching to try and just draw out some stories and and to provide some figures for the young people who are beginning their journey and to save for retirement. Now, we talk about saving and, and a lot of questions is, how much do I need to save, as you rightly pointed out? There is something called a target replacement rate which provides something to aim for in retirement based on what you're earning now. So, for example, if you were earning average earnings of £28,000 a year, your target replacement rate when you get to retirement would be around two-thirds of that. So you you aim to retire with about two-thirds, which is around £18,000. And that figure basically recognises the fact that when you're older... You won't have the fixed costs of things like a mortgage necessarily every, yes. every month. You might have paid that off. You won't. You have hopefully, to, yeah, <laughs> fingers crossed. Our generation might yes. not have done. Uh, you won't have to pay for your commute for suits for work. Yeah, that you, kind of thing. You can, you can step sur- down. Your costs will step down. But broadly enjoy the same standard of living that you had when you were in work. So, so that if you're on the average wage, twenty eight thousand pounds, you would need to find eighteen thousand to maintain the same standard of living. So how much would you need to save into okay, a pension? So just for example, we had the, some uh, numbers crunched on this. So you've got £18,000 to, to try and make up when you get to retirement. I assume about £8,000 of that is going to come from the state pension because that's the full state pension rate, leaving around £10,000 a year to be made up from your own private savings. So if you were saving at 8% of your earnings for 40 years... You could expect to build a fund of around £165,000 after 40 years. Now, this is going to be well short of the £330,000 that you would currently need to buy an index-linked annuity to guarantee a £10,000 a year income to make up that shortfall. So that's less than half. If you're saving 8%, you're on target for disappointment. You won't be buying a Lamborghini in retirement. <laughs> you'll be catching the bus or on a scooter. So that's not that's going to undershoot the target replacement rate by a significant amount. If you were saving a little bit more, 10% of full salary, now that can come from you and your employer in tax relief. It doesn't have to come from a total chunk of your salary. Of course. You could build a much bigger pot of nearly 250000 but that would still be around £80,000 short of the 327000 needed to meet the target replacement rate of two-thirds of your pre-retirement income. The only sure way to meet the target replacement rate, if you're on average earnings, is to get contributions up to around 15% of salary, which which is probably off-putting for many young people who are saving at minimum rates now. The only mandated rates are around 2%. Well, exactly. And 15%, as you say in the piece, it can be a lot to find when you look at these projections. In the full article, I should say, there's lots of caveats to these numbers. It's very hard to predict things like pensions because they're by their nature very, very long term. Annuity rates could change in the future. Um, You could also maybe up your level of pension contributions as you get older to try and make up um, some of the difference. But can you give us any hope for younger savers listening who are just listening to this and think, we can't afford to save that much. Well, I think you have to be like the doctor that I spoke to in Manchester who said he has to be practical and do what he can do and aim to restart his pension as soon as he's dealt with his debts. But he knew that he had good career prospects and he could catch up 
later on in life. So I think it's important to just do what you can do, start as early as you can, and then make those payments when you can make them. You can make one-off pension contributions later in life. They're an excellent way to reduce tax, especially if income in a more profitable year would result in the loss of child benefit should children come into your life later on or or the personal tax allowance while also boosting your retirement fund. Start saving early is the key thing though when you can. When you do invest have a diversified portfolio of assets and don't just rely on one or two funds it's also important so don't leave the money in cash over that period try and make it work harder for you. The other thing is maximise your employer contributions. Many firms go much further than the minimum they will match what you pay in but even double match. So you could find that you could reach that 15% of your salary by putting in 5% or 6% if your employer matches and the older you get, the empl- it tends to be the case that the employers will pay higher contributions. So there's also that to actually explore. So it's not totally gloomy. And better to start with something. Yes. Um, if you're listening and thinking, oh, I can't afford it, even if you can only afford a little, little bit, the power of compounding over time could make it less hard than you think. Well, thanks very much there to the FT's Josephine Cumbo and many congratulations for being voted National Newspaper Journalist of the Year by the Society of Pension Professionals last week. A well-deserved award. We'll have some champagne in the office on Friday. You can read the full article that Jay's written, Pension Savings, How Much Is Enough, in the money section of the weekend newspaper this Saturday or online from Friday ft.com slash money. Could stamp duty be something the Chancellor is tempted to tinker with in next week's budget? Stamp duty on the typical home in London now represents more than one third of average annual earnings in the capital. That's according to a new study from the London School of Economics published this week. The report's authors say that the levy, which raises more than £8 billion a year for the Treasury, needs an urgent rethink. Professor Tony Travers of the LSE joins me now in the studio to discuss. Welcome, Tony. Hello. So why do you think that stamp duty is dysfunctional? And what parts of the housing market is it distorting? Well, it's dysfunctional because it's a tax on the transaction when you're trying to buy and sell a house, in effect. And that means that it creates a powerful disincentive, particularly when it's at the high rates it's reached now for some of the most expensive properties. But, of course, expensive properties in London and the South East are often owned by people who are not on particularly or massively high incomes. So it, it distorts the operation of the property market. And, frankly, it creates a whole load of incentives not to do things like to sell and then to move on and buy somewhere else if you were perhaps getting... You lost you know, your your family had left home. You wanted to move on. It's very hard for older people to move. And secondly, you know, it's simply taxes on transactions of this kind are less good than taxes which are more predictable over time on, say, the annual value of the property. So, it, it's simply not a great tax. Okay, so the FT said this week, separately, that the Chancellor is lining up a budget cut in stamp duty for first-time buyers, potentially, to help them get on the housing ladder, young people being one of the groups that Philip Hammond really wants to appeal to in his plans next week. But is that the kind of thing that you want to see? Well, that sort of tinkering, uh, you know, suppressing a symptom rather than curing the illness, if I can be. I mean, it's at a risk of undermining a proposal before it's even seen the light of day if it does. Clearly, first-time buyers 
you know, have to raise the deposit on a property and Mm. then, of course, this additional payment besides. And that, I think, does make it doubly difficult, particularly in London and the South East. I mean, it's not unique to London and the South East, but it's particularly acute there where house prices are so high. So there's a housing supply issue in this as well, but it's uh, now made more complicated by the operation of stamp duty and, of course, its inhibition to transactions. Now, your report also looks at the possibility of council tax reform. Now, that's something that politicians in this country have always been terrified of, but do you think that the problems within the housing market are now so acute they'll have to tackle it? Well, council tax and then all discussions of even revaluing the base of council tax are haunted by the spectre of Mrs Thatcher, uh, who introduced the poll tax in 1990-1989 in Scotland. And then, it, in effect, it was one of the elements in her final demise and leaving office. And as a result of that, politicians are incredibly wary about doing anything to council tax. But, of course, council tax or domestic rates, as they used to be, if they were a properly operating annual tax on property, would react to changes in property prices far more rapidly than they do and actually send sensible market signals. The difficulty is not with talking through the logic of having a better operating council tax and perhaps much less raised from stamp duty, but the question of how you'd get there. Because every hour that passes, we don't reform the annual taxation of property makes it more difficult to make any change at all, including sensible ones, which could include much less dependency on stamp duty. Well, thanks very much there to Professor Tony Travers. You can read more on this subject in the FT Money section this weekend or online now at ft.com slash money. Staying with property, what might first time buyers, renters and buy to let landlords expect? at the first autumn budget next week. There won't be many windfalls, but the FT's Money Mentor columnist Lindsay Cook is ready with some predictions, and she's written about those in her Money Mentor column this week. Welcome, Lindsay. So there are big expectations that the Chancellor will try to do something to help young people in this budget. How might he do it? Well, it could be stamp duty. There's been a lot of hype about help to buy, about there being an extra £10 available. Now, so far, that has benefited well-off young people and the builders. So I would like to see probably some changes. It would be quite radical, but how about allowing help to buy on second-hand properties instead of new properties which have got a premium on them and just build the profits for the, the builders? And I'd like to see the help to buy ISA reformed because that seems to help people who are not super rich and have got 90,000 deposit or whatever. It helps those. And if you had a larger amount that you could earn over a number of years, we've got house prices that are probably not rising that fast at the moment. So people don't feel they've got to get onto the housing market tomorrow. If they start saving serious amounts of money and get 25% bonus on, say, 20 or 30,000, that will help them more. Some good ideas there. But what about the considerably larger numbers of young people who are renting a home? And it's not just the young people renting now. It's quite a wide range of people. Last budget, or last November, we were promised that there would be a scrapping of the excessive fees for um, renting a property, which can amount to, say, £3,000 on a £1,000 a month rent. We've had the Tenant Fees Bill, which has been published. It's a green paper at the moment. It'd be nice if it could get a little bit of a boost and get into the Finance Bill so it moved along a bit. And that will ban all 
letting agent fees for tenants, but it will also introduce some quite punitive fines for landlords and letting agents who slip up. It will. It will mean that agencies don't get a double whammy where they charge both the tenant and the landlord for the viewing fees, the finance checks, etc. Trading standards would be able to fine a landlord £5,000 if they're a repeat offender and they don't want to go to court, they can be fined up to 30000 So it's going to be quite important as long as it happens. And what else might renters expect to see? I would love to see, and I'm not sure it's on anybody's radar yet, but I hear over and over again from people who've paid the deposit, they've kept the place impeccably, they're told their landlord needs the property back, and then they have to wait weeks and weeks and weeks to get their deposit back and that means they have to find another six weeks worth of money to pay for their next flat. I think if you had um, a system where they had to pay interest or a penalty if they held on to the deposit without reason, they're in government schemes. They should be able to do it in a couple of days. Yeah, I have to say that there's various people in the FT's own office who have come to me with, with, with similar problems recently. So to give some comfort to those struggling to get onto the housing ladder. In this week's column, you've also looked at the maths of home ownership versus renting. Give us a brief synopsis of that. Well, timing is everything. And if I was talking five years ago, I would not be putting this argument forward. But the market in the South East and London has slowed down. And I've got one particular property in mind that I know all the figures on. It's been rented out for five years at £1,600 a month. It's now on the market at half a million pounds. Others in the development have sold for that. Now, somebody buying that, assuming they've got a £50,000 deposit, would be paying up to £2,500 a month in mortgage. They've also got to pay the service charge. They've also got to pay ground rent and they've got to look after the um, repairs. This means on that particular property, and there are lots like it, it's just I know the figures for this one, a renter would be paying about 6000 a year less than the buyer. And of course, the renter hasn't paid stamp duty and they don't have the problem at the end of they're trying to sell. The estate agent can't sell it straight away, so they have to cut their price and they can be paying quite substantial amounts. You know, they may sell it online or they may end up paying £10,000 for an estate agent to get rid of it. If you're only in a property for a short time, my view is if you've got less than a five-year view on staying in a property and you're in expensive areas, you should actually look at the maths and say, well, I'm going to be better off if I rented somewhere, saved a bit more and then buy, because I don't think property prices are going to race up in the next few years. We had that from um, Lucian Cook last week. I think this is a, a market view that prices are not racing ahead. Well, thanks very much there to Lindsay Cook. You can read her Money Mentor column in the FT Money section from Saturday or on ft.com slash money. And I'll also be making some budget predictions in my regular serious money column. That's it from the FT Money Show. To get in touch with our team of financial experts, email us money at ft.com, tweet us at FT Money or comment on articles online at ft.com slash money. We will be back next week with our budget special podcast. Goodbye. Planning for your next trip? 
Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 